But the reality is when many of the refugees leave their countries and they hop on these vehicles or in very dangerous circumstances, they have no idea what their destination is. They're not told where they're going. They're just told, you have a chance and tonight is the time to go. Let's go. And they go, right? And so I think that there's this, um, somehow this negative narrative and the criminalization um, that's attributed to these communities, the gamification of the system has sapped people's ability to be able to empathize with the realities that those communities are fleeing from. Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Pooja Kapai, a multi-award-winning researcher, academic and community justice advocate. Born and raised in Hong Kong, Pooja is also an associate professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. She talks to us about her work in minority rights, capturing unconscious bias in data, and why discrimination against ethnic minorities exists in Asia. Welcome back to Proudly Asian. On our podcast, we always talk about the representation of Asian diasporas in different parts of the world and why a certain group is underrepresented. And one of the reasons I think a lot of us would agree is that Asian communities outside Asia can be quite spread out. And that sort of explains why they are so underrepresented most of the time. And because they also come from diverse cultures, so it's even harder to capture all of their experiences in data. And if the presence of Asian diaspora it's so hard to capture in data. It makes unconscious bias and racism in any parts of the world even harder to show up on data. So this is why I'm bringing in our guest this week because part of her work is basically putting racism and unconscious bias, especially with ethnic minorities in Asia on the map. So thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Proudly Asian Pooja. How are you? Hi, Isabel. I'm doing really well. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really look forward to hearing your insights and just basically hearing about the work that you've been doing um, in terms of human rights with ethnic minorities and also the kind of research work that you've been doing. But before we get into that part, why don't we start with a quick introduction about yourself? So Pooja, we always ask our guests this set of questions. Who are you? What are you and where did you grow up? So I'm Pooja Kapai and I'm an associate professor of law at the University of Hong Kong. I'm also our convener of the Women's Studies Research Center, where we look at issues ranging uh, across the board in relation to gender equality, racial diversity, um, inclusion, belonging and social justice. I have uh, I come to this work with a, a firm sort of legal background. I was in one lifetime a practicing lawyer uh, before I moved to academia. 
And I grew up right here in Hong Kong and went through the school system here. Uh, I've had a few um, stints overseas where I pursued a year on exchange in the UK and I did my master's in the US. So I do have that experience of living elsewhere uh, as, uh, as a minority, but Hong Kong is very much um, sort of my home. Amazing. So just out of curiosity, has your experience growing up in Hong Kong inspired you to go into your current line of work or what are the reasons why you're doing what you're doing? I'd say in every way, I think the experiences I've had growing up in Hong Kong and the opportunities I've had access to, but also the doors that were close to me have very much prompted uh, the line of work that I'm passionate about Um specifically not only in terms of my experiences as a as a woman, but more importantly, my experiences as an ethnic minority woman. And I'd say growing up as an ethnic minority child in Hong Kong, undergoing sort of the local school system um, and, and really trying to understand what my sort of uh, dreams are and what I'm destined for, all of that, I would have to say it has been shaped by the series of experiences I've had And most often it's been um, shaped by kind of doors closing, uh, denials of opportunities or sort of people passing over me. Um, But, you know, that's really what has opened up a whole new world and a different perspective um, for me, which made it very clear why, you know, this line of work is so important to sort of draw attention to the issues that people continue to confront, even well long after I've gone through the system uh, and and how they remem- remain really sort of pertinent, um, yeah, today, not just in Hong Kong, but really for diasporas everywhere. Mm-hmm. One of the main topics that I want to talk to you about and ask for your insights is definitely the current state of play in terms of ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. And I know that you've been dedicated, like you mentioned, most of your career in human rights for ethnic minorities. So could you begin by unpacking the current state of play for the ethnic minorities groups in Asia and Hong Kong? How are we doing in terms of equality and has the overall situation improved over the years in your view? So I'd say that, you know, one of the things that caught my attention um, was to examine the status of ethnic minorities in Hong Kong, because for years I had the sense that for some reason members of our communities were not doing very well. And we seem to be grossly underrepresented in a range of professions or sort of we're not very sort of visible in public for the right reasons. In fact, I would see us being visible in the public eye for the wrong reasons. And it really sort of prompted sort of um, this investigation into why it is um, that this is the case. Because around me, I could identify people who were really bright, intelligent, who had the passion to contribute, but yet they weren't necessarily making their way up the sort of the ladder. Um, And so that led me to look really deeply at the um, existing research and statistics that we had on hand in relation to ethnic minorities in Hong Kong specifically. And so I drew together all of this research between 1997, which was when there was... um, the return of sovereignty to China um, uh, in terms of Hong Kong. And I looked at uh, that sort of data between 1997 and 2014. So really looking at it over a lengthy sort of almost 15 to 17 years uh, of uh, of a period and, and to examine sort of what was the pattern like. And what really sort of struck me was how across every sphere that I examined, whether it was um, experiences of uh, day-to-day discrimination 
to um, experiences in the education system, uh, employment, uh, hiring and firing processes, um, poverty, home ownership, uh, healthcare, and uh, crime and law enforcement. So across all of these spheres of life, ethnic minorities were persistently underrepresented or underperforming or overrepresented if we're talking about poverty and um, sort of crime and law enforcement. And that struck me as extremely worrying and really sort of uh, prompted a deeper level inquiry into why. And obviously for me, uh, as a legal scholar, it, it really came down to understanding the patterns of discrimination and systemic inequality that had somehow been built into the systems that have been designed uh, uh, to improve people's lives uh, and, and their opportunities. And I could start to recognize some of the patterns at play, which basically shaped our lifelong trajectory from the moment we try to access schools. And I noticed that it was basically a pathway that we were destined to follow because the system kind of encased us along this particular pathway. And to break free of that was extremely difficult. And you had to have a great deal of fortuity or intelligence and network, or you had to have a generational kind of um, intergenerational sort of um, uh, wealth or support system to really kind of catapult you out of this systemic kind of um, encasement in a life of deprivation. Uh, and I'd say that, you know, beyond kind of looking at this in the Hong Kong context, what became very clear over the past few years is that this is the systemic pattern that is in play for minorities around the world by and large. Uh, and this applies to the diasporic um, communities. And what's even more, I think, revealing is as I applied an intersectional lens, not just necessarily looking at race, but digging even deeper to look at factors such as race, religion, gender, and trying to see how these different permutations work together to identify whether ethnic minority women or Muslim women, for example, Muslim men, how were they faring in these you know, different contexts in relation to education or healthcare and um, poverty? It became very clear that these patterns were manifesting globally. And it's, you know, it's really come, uh, I think, uh, forward in an unexpected way in 2020 with the you know, um, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but it's really sort of unraveled the historically entrenched position of minority communities that is kind of a hangover or a legacy of kind of the historic slavery or um, colonialism that many diasporic communities have live un lived under, right? Uh, and of course, for the African-American uh, populations and, and African communities generally around the world, I think they've experienced kind of a, a very different type of imperialism, uh, which is pervasive, um, not just in terms of opportunities, but also the legacy of that narrative that has carried over and, and sort of been very deeply entrenched across the board. And so the question after sort of compiling these statistics and really demonstrating through evidence to say this is a problem um, that we need to contend with, because typically, um, you know, governments don't like to confront the notion that they are somehow, you know, discriminating against particular groups because that's not considered to be civilized. And obviously that's a violation of our human rights obligations under international law. But having the data set really helps put these issues on the map 
and has helped to kind of set the agenda uh, in terms of uh, what are we going to do now to tackle this now that we recognize this as a problem. Uh, so for me, that was really, really important to do because up until then, um, you know, over 20 years of advocacy, the response has typically been, we don't have a race discrimination problem in Hong Kong, at least, because we're so multicultural, we're such an international city and, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, so I'd say that there's a nexus between kind of the domestic patterns that I've managed to uncover and what we're seeing emerging globally. Right. I would like to specifically follow up on the example that you mentioned about the education options or pathway for ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. Like, Can you elaborate a little bit more? Is it around whether or not they might be able to afford, let's say, international schooling or if they go through traditional schooling path, they would be expected to do the same Chinese language exam? Like, Could you be a little bit more specific about that? Sure. So, you know, we have a public education system, which um, anybody is eligible to enter into as long you have a, as you have a Hong Kong sort of identity card. Um, and so and this is sort of from the primary level onwards for kindergarten, that's still largely managed by um, sort of government subvented NGOs or it's sort of privately managed. And, you know, so one of the trends is that because these um kindergartens are managed privately or by NGOs, you've got a huge range in terms of um, resources, but also sort of capacity to be able to educate um, children who do not have Chinese uh, as kind of their, their home language. And so many ethnic minority children uh, end up um, in sort of, if they can afford it, they would end up in the private kind of kindergartens, which generally don't have a focus on Chinese. They tend to be in English predominantly, uh, or there are some that do sort of have programs in Chinese, but the focus is typically Putonghua, uh, but they're very expensive. And as you rightly noted, that would typically put out of pocket many of the um, communities that we're talking about. And in that set, in that sort of scenario, most of them would want to turn to kind of the local system. And um, that basically means NGOs that are um, receiving some grants from the government uh, to run their programs. And um, the government has in recent years, as a result of the advocacy that I've done together with other NGOs, allocated more funds for NGOs uh, or sort of kindergartens that receive more non-Chinese children and uh, enroll them. Uh, and the idea is for them to sort of expend these resources on um, integrating these uh, children, providing better education opportunities so that they can actually grasp the language. Um, but, you know, the reality is that um, the interviews still continue to be conducted in Cantonese. And you might not even be shortlisted for the interview if your application doesn't demonstrate some of the eligibility markers. So sometimes there's priority given for siblings or, you know, if, you have, um, if you've got a parent who is alumnus, and things like that. So there are many factors which often uh, put uh, ethnic minority children sort of out of competition uh, in terms of being able to access the opportunities. I mean, you can imagine admission interviews for you know typically two-year-olds who are going to preschool, and they're required to demonstrate their, uh, lang their language skills in Cantonese, but they wouldn't have any because there's nobody at home who speaks Cantonese. You know, so I've I've gone through that with my older boy who's now nine. And, you know, we did these interviews and it's only that because he was sort of placed in these playgroups where he had some exposure to Cantonese that he knew a few words. Um, but again, I, I really don't think that any 
other sort of parents who who might not have had the luxury of sending their kids to these playgroups would have been able to, you know, keep up with these processes, let alone sort of ensure their child has the necessary linguistic exposure. And they probably wouldn't have fared well through the interviews anyway. So that process, basically, in terms of whether you are placed in an institution where your child is exposed to Chinese or not, pretty much dictates which primary school you get into in the public system. And typically, if you are not able to kind of acquire the Chinese language skills, you'll yet again not be shortlisted in the kind of primary school interviews for the schools that you're keen on. And uh, you'll probably be um, chaperoned towards the English medium of instruction schools for your child, uh, which, uh, to, you know, again, have come to be characterized by a predominantly ethnic minority population, right? So there are these segregated schools even though that is no longer the official policy of the Hong Kong government. Um, but there was a policy between 20, 2004 and 2014 where these schools were sort of designated as the schools that would predominantly receive ethnic minority children on the basis that you know they would be taught Chinese at a pace that would be relevant to their ability to grasp the language. But, you know, the um, data... And the evidence shows that these children were in effect being shortchanged because they were not exposed to a Chinese language speaking environment in which they could effectively practice the language. And the curriculum was very basic to the point where even Form 6 graduates were only speaking Chinese to the level of a primary two or a primary three student in their sort of equivalent uh, in the local system, right? And obviously you can imagine if you're graduating from uh, form six, and that's your level of Chinese, you're probably not going to be competitive in the job market at all, right? And not even, not only just that, but also that would undermine your prospects of entering Hong Kong universities. So that's sort of the trajectory that you're set up for if you belong to sort of a family where Chinese is not sort of your mother tongue language or not your home language. Um, and the school system, although, you know, this segregated schooling system was disbanded in 2014, invariably minority parents still continue to send their children to these schools because there's familiarity. There, you know, there's a community, there's a sense of belonging, and um, the parents feel that throwing their kids into the mainstream system is like throwing them into the deep end. And their kids are probably unlikely to be able to survive those schools. Uh, and again, I'll say this, you know, having a child myself who's going through the public school system now, who's in grade three, and he's in the Chinese stream. And, you know, with all the support that we can provide him, it is still so, so difficult. It's such a battle every day to persuade him to kind of keep at Chinese and to tell him that his grades are not reflective of his abilities um, and to encourage him and to say that this is really important because it will help you down the line to kind of belong and to be integrated. Um, so I think that there's a lot really that needs to be done in order to um, make it possible for more non-Chinese children to be placed in, in these contexts where they have a genuine opportunity to acquire Chinese to a level that is equivalent to their peers. And that sometimes means that you have to put in more resources uh, in order to equip them to be able to do better progressively. Uh, and that's not being done. Um, I think that there's this um, real sense of a conflict within the education system because there are many gaps 
uh, and they apply to the, the overall population, you know, children who have special education needs or um, children in Hong Kong who need more support in learning better English, uh, for example, or, you know, STEM subjects need to be emphasized. So I think there's a real challenge in terms of how to balance those resources. And then you've got this group, which is really the underclass uh, that's also demanding additional resources. But it's so vital because, as I've said, um, and there are many studies to sort of undergird this reality, this lack of um, opportunity to achieve Chinese to the requisite level really dictates the long-term future pathway of these children. And it can make the difference between them uh, sort of being trapped in a cycle of intergenerational poverty or being able to break free and becoming the first in the family to enter university and um, become a professional. It really sounds like one missed opportunity could have implications for decades or even generations. And a lot of times it's not even something that they could control. Like a lot of it could come from socioeconomic factors and also in the sense of like, even if you can somehow fight enough to access the same set of resources, there will always be Chinese Hong Kong classmates around you who might have even more additional resources. So I hear a lot of these happening around the schooling system um, in the city. But the next part I want to ask you about is when it comes to ethnic minorities, um, communities in Hong Kong, there's one group that is often not very visible or represented, which for our international listeners, they might not even have had the chance to hear about their current situation, which will be the refugees in Hong Kong. So just for awareness, could you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be refugees in Hong Kong and what's the size of the population? Sure. So I think it might uh, sort of help if I put it into context of the broader ethnic minority community, right? So Hong Kong's ethnic minorities generally comprise 8% of the total population. Out of that 8%, 4 uh, 4.2% to be exact, uh, comprise the uh, domestic worker population groups, right? So these are the migrant domestic workers who come to Hong Kong to work in households uh, in order that Hong Kong women and men can go to work, right? So they really help to support the families with childcare or elderly care. Uh, so the remainder of the um, sort of homegrown ethnic minority population is around 3.8%. And that has a spread of a range of different ethnic groups, including um, uh Indians, Nepalese, Pakistanis, uh, Japanese, Koreans, um, Indonesians, Filipina, Vietnamese people. So that's sort of the broad um, sort of groupings. And the South Asian community is is one of the larger sort of um, ethnic groups among sort of that population group. Then, you know, when we talk about ethnic minorities in Hong Kong and in terms of policy, it's sort of a misnomer, but generally it does. It's it's understood that we're not referring to the refugee community and we're not referring to the domestic worker population. So a lot of the conversations we're having about exclusion or racism, somehow they do not um, reference the experiences of the refugees and migrant domestic workers. Whereas obviously because of their immigration status or lack thereof, they're probably the groups that are also very significantly impacted by um, racism, right, uh, that they experience in the course of their own precarity and vulnerability, right? So this particular group 
um, of refugees in Hong Kong. In terms of size, I would say it ranged from between about 10 to 14,000, uh, you know, going by the latest statistics. Uh, and the part of the challenge has been the fact that this is a group that has remained static and in wait for a long time in Hong Kong because we've had a very uh, strict uh, sort of screening system in Hong Kong, which has meant that those who come here and file for uh, a declaration of being sort of a refugee have to wait for a decade or almost two decades before their applications are screened uh, successfully or not. And we've had several sort of judicial challenges in relation to the mechanisms for screening and I won't go into de- sort of, uh, you know, great depth around sort of these mechanisms, but long and short of it is that it is so difficult to get this declaration of refugee status through the Hong Kong uh, system because of stereotypes such as uh, most of our refugee claimants are uh, economic migrants who are just trying to come to Hong Kong to game the system in order to, you know, um, seek jobs illegally and to stay on in the territory. This claim has also been made about migrant domestic workers who come here as migrant workers and then end up overstaying their visa. And then they end up filing for a refugee claim because they say that they will be persecuted in their home countries. Some of them uh, say this on the basis that um, they might have um engaged in a same-sex relationship, for example, in Hong Kong, and that could be a cause for persecution when they go back home, say in Indonesia, where this would be considered to be haram because they're, you know, uh, of a Muslim background. Um, And others might have had um, children out of wedlock while they're in Hong Kong. And again, that would be another cause for gender-based persecution and things like that. And so the, the narrative around refugees in Hong Kong is extremely negative, And that negativity has been fueled largely by the media. And so I did this wide-scale study together with um, two students of mine in 2016 and 2017, where we examined the media discourse around uh, refugee claimants. And what we found after examining about three, nearly 3,000 articles in the English and Chinese media was that consistently across the board in general, especially in the Chinese media, you would often find um, the term refugee to be very closely located with words that suggested criminality, illegality, or drugs, or deviance, right? And so that kind of messaging uh, was very pervasive. And we found that the, uh, the time when this kind of rhetoric was most escalated was around the time of elections for the Legislative Council. So it's very politicized, very similar to what we see happening in the United Kingdom, for example, where there is this huge debate ongoing around what to do with um, people coming over uh, by boat and whether to send them back. Um, And again, of course, this has been also a prominent feature of election campaigns in the U.S., especially when Donald Trump was coming to power, you know, and so that entire kind of zooming in onto immigrants as sort of the scapegoat of all of the problems that uh, a community is experiencing uh, is is very strategic. And again, it's a global strategy that has been deployed by politicians uh, for beyond a century. So even in the 1800s, we know that the U.S. had, you know, the uh, the act that prohibited uh, Chinese from entering the United States. 
uh, and, you know, and cut to today, we still have legislation that is trying to keep certain people out. And so the media really sort of um, uh, uses this rhetoric to um, create this impression that we have a burgeoning group of refugees that are continuing to come to Hong Kong and they're overwhelming our resources and that most of those claims are not legitimate and they don't deserve our sympathy because they tend to be criminals or they're fake refugees. That's been the narrative in Hong Kong. The other thing that we've noticed also is that they seem to overplay uh, the representation of particular groups. So for example, the uh, news outlets would report that there is a uh, substantial group of Indian and Pakistani refugees. Whereas in reality, if you compare those statistics with what is um, at the immigration uh, department, right, what's available in that data set, it's significantly uh, less. So uh, in the study, we found that um, the media claimed there were 31% of refugees were um uh, of Indian background and 18% were Pakistani, whereas in the immigration data set, there were 21% of Indians and 20% uh, of the Pakistani community. Uh, likewise, Vietnamese refugees are overplayed as representing sort of 28%, uh, whereas in actuality, they were just 14% of the entire group. So this kind of playing around with um, sort of racial or national backgrounds also uh, creates the stereotype between uh, Indian and Pakistani or Vietnamese, again, um, being associated with criminality, drug peddling, uh, and and those kind of very negative stereotypes. And of course, whatever the rhetoric or stereotypes that exist about refugees then rubs off onto uh, what people think about ethnic minority groups who are uh, permanent residents of Hong Kong, right? Uh, especially the South Asian population group. And so you start to see in that period uh, an increasing sentiment among the local ethnic minority communities of being treated as though they're outsiders and that they don't belong or uh, experiencing kind of negative or racist sort of treatment. And of course, the greatest tragedy is that some of the role models, right, the people who have power are the ones who are partaking in this negative rhetoric because of uh, election or other sort of strategic reasons, right? To kind of reflect to the Chinese community that they're aware of the problem. And this is the problem that we have to tackle. And as you also know, it's very common to problematize vulnerable groups because it's convenient and you can help deflect sort of attention from the real issues that you really don't want to be under the spotlight. So that's definitely been true and characteristic of how Hong Kong refugee communities have been treated. Uh, and a final statistic I'll leave you with is, you know, despite these thousands of claims in the past few years, even though there have been some reforms related to the mechanism, um, there's been a less than 1% success rate of refugees being able to successfully claim that they're entitled to this declaration. And why do I talk about a declaration? It's because Hong Kong is too small for refugees to actually relocate here. So when people come here and then they seek this declaration, after they get the declaration, they then have to wait to be relocated to a third country, which is sort of willing to take refugees in. So for example, Canada or Australia or wherever else, right? So Hong Kong is not a, com a community that can house refugees permanently. We're sort of a transit point where we help to resettle people. So in that sense, you know, we don't have a long-term stake 
um, in uh, sort of establishing the refugee status of communities. And so it's very uh, difficult to understand why we would put so many people on hold or reject them. Of course, now I understand why we reject them. We reject their claims because then we can deport them. And in fact, now a new policy uh, has come into play through law that uh, there is, you know, um, once a decision is made, you can immediately deport the refugee and you don't have to allow them to stay in the territory, even if they're appealing that particular decision. And of course, we know that once they're out of the city, any appeal is probably unlikely to have any sort of significant impact. Um, yeah, so that's where we're at. And I think that we have to understand these links between the negative perceptions and the feelings of fear that are really designed to make us feel like we're under attack by this community of people or we're being overwhelmed. So you'll notice the language in the media and the rhetoric, which is common in the U.S. and Hong Kong and the U.K., where, you know, a swarm of refugees uh, or a boatload of people, they're flooding or overwhelming our resources. So these words, this narrative, again, is deployed precisely to prime us, really, to color our thinking and and to feel overwhelmed by these communities so that when people mention the term refugees or talk about South Asian groups, we instantly connect them with people who draw on resources, uh, who will meet more for them mean less for us, and they're flooding our schools. And so if we give in to them, then our children would probably have less resources for them. So our policy should be to basically, you know, hardline and say no, right? Yeah, that's right. And like you mentioned earlier, right, a lot of refugees, they would always have to end up waiting for like 10 years, decades before the application even get reviewed, either successful or unsuccessful. And this period of time, basically, it leaves them no choice because they are not allowed to take jobs. Is that right? That's correct. And it leaves them no choice, but to make a living, they might have to engage in illegal activities and business so which sort of further fears that label of like them being criminals or drug traffickers right yes so you know the stipend that they receive in fact it's not even a stipend they receive in-kind kind of supplies to sustain themselves and it's such a menial uh, amount and it's sort of coupons so they have to spend those coupons at particular places uh, even though they could get the same goods more cheaply or in quantities that are more manageable for them from other uh, vendors, they can't do that. So it's a very constrained kind of um, economic situation that they have. And, you know, there's no provision made for different kinds of families. So, for example, if you have a child, you know, you might not need as many bags of rice, but you need formula, for example, or you need diapers. And so all of that you wouldn't want to necessarily get from Welcome or Parkin Shop, which are more of the high-end supermarkets. You want to get it from a pharmacy where, where you can get it for much cheaper, for example. And so these flexibilities are taken away because they're, it's, you know, the, uh, the mentality is you have to scrutinize and account for every dollar that um, you know, they're spending and want to make sure that they're only spending it on money and uh, on uh, food and transport and basic living expenses. Mm -hmm. A lot of the housing situation is also, you know, deeply sort of um, problematic. Uh, there is a lot of hygiene issues um, and health issues uh, in terms of the conditions that they're living in. And as you said, if you're here uh, for 10 to 14 years, imagine you're this qualified lawyer or engineer and you're sitting here and you're not allowed to work and you have a family. And, uh, you know, what do you do? You, it's psychologically a drain. 
right? You're living in this fear of persecution, this complete uncertainty, and basically your life is passing you by and you're still, you know, you're stuck and trapped in a system. Whereas the narrative very much is that these people calculate and come to Hong Kong on the pretext of their sort of, you know, uh, politicized situation or persecution, uh, and, and they, they want to game the system. But the reality is when many of the refugees leave their countries and they hop on these vehicles or in very dangerous circumstances, they have no idea what their destination is. They're not told where they're going. They're just told, you have a chance, and tonight is the time to go. Let's go. And they go, right? And so I think that there's this um, somehow this negative narrative and the criminalization um, that's attributed to these communities, the gamification of the system has sapped people's ability to be able to empathize with the realities that those communities are fleeing from. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of increased the apathy. So somehow uh, we have been primed by the media to not feel sort of the sense of persecution that these communities are running away from. And even when they tell their stories, we're, we're primed not to feel um, anything, any sense of responsibility. And I think that's the critical danger of kind of these biases that are creeping into our minds against certain groups, right? They're not coming out of nowhere. These biases are very much designed and they're calculated and they're widespread, And in this sense, all the issues that are facing ethnic minorities in Hong Kong, all of them basically go beyond racism. It's really a mixed set of issues, including socioeconomic, gender, and all that that's at play, right? So can the society even go about solving these issues? Or like you mentioned, since people don't really feel bad, is there even a reason or motivation for local policymakers to solve these issues? Absolutely, right? So one of the things that um, the research I did on the status of ethnic minorities revealed was that, you know, uh, Hong Kong's um, population growth has slowed tragically. And one of the fastest growing communities, however, is our ethnic minority youth. So these young people are essentially going to be the future productive members of Hong Kong society. So there is every incentive with our aging population. There's every incentive to make sure that they're on the right path to become productive individuals, as opposed to individuals who end up relying on, you know, social security. And I'm, you know, I would say that it's a huge oversight not to have this futuristic mindset to be able to anticipate the huge talent pool that we're basically uh, sacrificing at the altar of prejudice and exclusion. And it's predicated on this misconception that Hong Kong's ethnic minorities are uh, a transient population group. They're not here to stay. They're going, you know, they came in. And they're going to leave. But we didn't come in from anywhere. We've been here, right? So many of us have been here for four or five generations since the British first landed in Hong Kong, right? Right in the 1840s, some of the first population groups were the Indians uh, who came here with the British Battalion. Some of the first landmark institutions that are globally recognized today were established by prominent ethnic minority businessmen, for example, the uh, University of Hong Kong, the foundation stone was laid by a Parsi member. 
the Hong Kong Star Ferry was set up by Hormish G. Modi, who's also a Parsi gentleman businessman. Um, the HSBC, right? So all of these landmarks. So these are widely recognized global landmarks. And yet the discourse on ethnic minorities seems to be out of place in terms of uh, treating us as though we're population groups that are here for a short time and have no invested future in Hong Kong. So I think that really, uh, that mindset must change and we need to recognize the huge incentive that is there for the Hong Kong uh, government, but also the people to see, to look to this uh, potential talent pool that's a huge resource for the future and the success of Hong Kong. It's going to define kind of the economic success of, you know, the coming decades. And I also know that some of the recent work that you've been doing, you're really trying to put areas that are hard to show up on data, for example, unconscious bias and stigma. Like you're really trying to capture them in data, right? I want to understand more about the work that you're doing there. You know, what kind of approach are you taking to monitor and document unconscious bias and stigma in a way that's in data sets, basically? So the status of ethnic minorities report was an attempt to capture, you know, the actual biases, right? The systemic biases, which are kind of demonstrated by the statistics themselves, right? And some people may argue that just because you have, you know, data set A that then demonstrate that some people are not as well off as others doesn't necessarily depict a causal link between, you know, their condition and Hong Kong government policies. However, I think that there's enough of a body of research to dem demonstrate that there is a, a very important nexus and education has a huge role to play. And the lack of educational sort of equity has a huge role to play in determining these circumstances. However, moving beyond that, you know, one of the challenges of uh, data is that sometimes it has the tendency to obfuscate what is really at play. And it can't really quite capture um, the kind of nuanced uh, environmental factors that are also playing into the process of uh, invisibilizing certain communities or marginalizing certain communities. And so the work that I'm doing on unconscious bias is really designed to, first of all, displace this idea that um, there uh, that there is no unconscious bias in the context of Asia, because a lot of the studies related to unconscious bias uh, hail from the West, right? Those are the typical reference points that we have, uh, you know, that uh, especially in the U.S., there's a huge plethora of studies um, and they, you know, they pertain to different population groups, such as the Asian American community, the African American community, sexual minorities, religious minorities. So they have the whole gamut. And what I wanted to do with this, you know, really small piece of work was to say uh, that, you know, now we have data that we have unconscious bias in Hong Kong and also in Asia, right? That's sort of a, a way of grounding the conversation to say, first of all, it's not a Western problem. It's a global problem. But also to, to highlight that, uh, you know, although bias is global in nature, the way in which these biases manifest and affect sort of our communities uh, are different, right? So the way in which Asian Americans or South Asians, for example, are treated in America doesn't necessarily denote how they would be treated in Hong Kong. And I wanted to capture that through this sort of piece of research. And then more importantly, apart from using this research as a tool to raise awareness, I wanted to focus on what are the most significant areas 
where biases are having a huge impact. And so the, the study I did looked at the manifestation of bias in relation to gender in general. So gender and career, sort of, you know, how uh, successful can women be, for example, and whether they should be leaders or not, but also gender and sciences. So our predispositions to thinking about women as not being particularly strong at sciences or STEM and, you know, the kind of uh, male dominance that we have in our society, I wanted to examine that, explore that a little bit more, because I think the Hong Kong population uh, really does care about equality in relation to gender and and yet recognizes that there are these cultural uh, stereotypes that um, do hold women back. Um, and then the other facet of the study was really to explore where we sit on the spectrum of racial bias. And I focused on two types of racial biases. One is Chinese people's attitudes towards South Asians in Hong Kong. And then I also was interested in exploring the racial biases uh, of Hong Kong Chinese towards mainland Chinese. Because to me, that is really a defining feature of uh, the divisions in society that we've seen in recent years. So I wanted to see if that could be captured. And, you know, the, the findings in, in, in a nutshell really are uh, that we all have biases and our biases, um, you know, pertain both to gender and to race, and that our biases in respect of race are stronger, right? They're more embedded and entrenched than our biases in respect of gender issues. Now, on the gender spectrum, are, uh, we're more open-minded in relation to gender and career, and we have many uh, challenges yet to overcome in relation to gender and STEM. And on the other hand, our biases towards South Asians are far more entrenched than our biases towards mainlanders. The study I did also tried to um, experiment with interventions and tried to test whether an intervention can help to mitigate these biases. Because as you know, there are studies around the world now that demonstrate that interventions don't work. You can address unconscious bias by an intervention. So I wanted to test that hypothesis. Um, and what I found was that interventions do work as long as they're tailored and really contextualized to target the particular form of discrimination that you're trying to mitigate. And I found that it was possible to correct people's unconscious biases in relation to gender, but it was much harder. In fact, not really very, uh, I wasn't very successful at being able to mitigate against people's racial biases. Those were the most entrenched. And I think what that the takeaway from that study for me is that our racial biases are so deeply entrenched because of historical factors, but also our socialization and our constant exposure to the negative uh, views that society kind of peddles around minorities. Uh, that we have to work much harder and go beyond sort of a one-off intervention to undo those kinds of unconscious bias. And obviously, I mean, if we think about what is unconscious bias, those are perceptions that we've acquired over a long period of time through our socialization, our cultural, religious, economic, geopolitical exposure and environment, and, you know, repetitive exposure to ideas about particular communities. And if we think about the Hong Kong context, especially what I mentioned about schools, if the majority of ethnic minority kids, for example, are not going to mainstream public schools, but are going to separate schools, and if the majority of us tend to live in Yao Mong and Yun Long, you know, 
And if the majority of us are only in the news for all the wrong reasons, those are prime sort of um, factors that are influencing people's biases. And so when you're you're not you're never confronted with a positive example, you know. And so when you first encounter an ethnic minority, your gut reaction, because of the way that we're sort of hardwired in our brain, is to think of people as a threat and to think about how to get rid of them, right? Or to kind of not expend your resources on them. So I really strongly believe that it's very, very important to tackle sort of these um, biases at the uh, at a very early stage in life, but also to really review um, extensively the sources of such negative perceptions, but also to work on a counter narrative. So it's not enough just to teach people to be non-discriminatory. It's not good enough just to say, oh, you should not be biased. It's very important to recognize that social media and other forms of exposure are constantly peddling these negative uh, realities to people. And then there has to be an equally pervasive or strong counter narrative that is telling people that this is not true. Or here are some positive examples of people who are contributing. So one example of the, you know, the work that I'm trying to do is to educate people about the contributions of ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. So some of the examples I shared with you, many people in our community, even in our, in our own community, among the ethnic minority community, have no idea that we've contributed to sort of these landmark institutions that you know really are a part of the history and making of Hong Kong. And I think that that's really a huge part of the problem. Um, and that really sort of uh, needs to be addressed through kind of uh, work to, first of all, make people understand that we are part of the problem and this is where we are weak. And then to say, we all have a responsibility because this is happening, whether we're aware of it or not aware of it, right? And so we have this responsibility and we owe it to kind of future generations to create a space which is more inclusive, receptive, and that can enable every member to be a productive member of the community. And if I'm to talk in business terms or economic terms, which language I think is more appealing to some people because they're very calculative, the long and short of it is it's more economical in the long run if people are independent and productive members of society rather than, you know, drawing on sort of um, limited resources in relation to social welfare. So why would you set up a community to fail? Why would you not want to undo this entire system that's producing um, or setting up people to fail? It just makes no business sense. Yeah, I really love the approach that you are suggesting there. It's like not just raising the negative issues or because like whenever you talk about, oh, hey, there's a problem, you guys are biased. A large amount of people are going to be like, yeah, whatever, fine. But then like you're also suggesting a narrative to counter the negative representation that has been persisting in the society, basically telling them, hey, these people have been contributing to the city for the longest times and you might not even know all these amazing landmarks and contributions are made by ethnic minorities. So I really love how you're putting in a little bit of that positive approach to hopefully influence people's perceptions as well. One 
other data related question that I have, like you mentioned earlier, right? A lot of Asian or like Asian related data when it comes to like racism or like stereotypes are very US centric. It's because there's a huge population of Asian Americans in the States and because they are a lot more concentrated in one nation. So it will essentially mean they might have the resources or the lobbying power to sort of like do more researches about their own issues and representation. But there are also Asian diasporas outside the US, outside Asia, for example, British Asians, Asians in Europe, in Africa. They are a lot more spread out. Not a lot of people know about their existence, their experiences, but then they have been around in those parts of the world for the longest time. So I'm wondering if there are even any approaches that could begin to capture the experiences and the representation in data. Would you have any points of view on this? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we started out talking about is how everything that we're witnessing in the context of Hong Kong has demonstrated that it's really a microcosm of what is unfolding at the global level, right? And so for me, that's a really important um, uh, lesson to draw on and to reflect on. How do we connect the dots if we're seeing that ethnic minorities are underrepresented or overrepresented in a negative way and underrepresented in positions of power globally, then we should connect the dots and talk about systemic racism and how it's um, unfolding in different parts of the world. And recognizing the different contexts, we should start to piece together the data and then identify strategies and solutions for engagement so that we can develop solutions to move forward. Because people would not take a problem at face value unless you have the evidence. So that's where the data comes in. People will not be ready to raise awareness about a problem if we don't also propose solutions at the same time. And so we really have to do this work collectively by connecting um, the different um, advocacy groups or NGOs that are set up in order to support um diaspora communities in different parts of the world. And if there isn't such a group, I think it's very important to set up such groups uh, within uh, each of those nations where there are diaspora communities. And, you know, the reality is that many of these diasporic communities have been uh, set up because of the advent of slavery or colonialism. So there's a very deep-rooted history that we all share Right. And we are called ethnic minorities, but generations ago, we would be called refugees. It's just a, it's, we're just at a different point on the same spectrum of not belonging. But now we're moving towards the other end of the spectrum. So for, for me as a third generation Hong Konger, I'm moving to a point in the spectrum where, you know, this is home for me. And so I think that, um, it demonstrates that there is a prospect for progress and inclusion and loyalty to the community that you've grown up with uh, that you can then harness for positive action and productive action that is better for Hong Kong or whatever nation you know you are now part of. And that's the sort of that's the nature of global citizenship, I think, that we're all moving towards or should be moving towards. So it's very important, I think, um, to think about how you connect movements around the world and understand experiences as being greater than just these individual experiences. And what's been most troubling, I think, for me is when you 
think in these global terms, you start to recognize common patterns of behavior and you recognize that the impact is not individual. The consequences are not individual. They're actually cumulative. And that's one of the greatest failings of the law and why I feel social justice advocacy is so important is because the law can only take you so far. The law can only help you identify individual circumstances of exclusion or discrimination. But I think when you have this cumulative, repeated, systematized unfairness and injustice, you then recognize that you know the world has been set up in a way to create this massive underclass that has given rise to huge inequalities. And so unconscious bias is just one point. It's just one juncture on this long highway of injustice that really is sort of a pathway that ultimately, if it's not addressed, it has the potential to culminate in dehumanizing hatred, violence, and even death. And none of these are just scary epithets that I'm just throwing out there. These are realities that we've now witnessed over and over again. And for me, you know, I feel this great sense of uh, what are we waiting for? What more do we need to to sort of feel moved enough to, to recognize that this is the greatest tragedy of our time that is unfolding before our eyes? And what else would it take for us to recognize our responsibility to step up and do something about this? And, uh, you know, so uh, I hope that that kind of motivation can drive, um, especially kind of young people to crave um, better education uh, that really shines a light on these issues, that helps unpack some of the ways in which we're, we're taught um, to to see different people, to understand their circumstances, and to treat different people. I think these narratives that we're exposed to, they, they, come, up, they, they come up for us very early on in our education. Um, and, and maybe that, uh, to me, represents the strongest, most direct uh, potential pathway to address unconscious biases so that we don't end up having this um, tragic end uh, at the end of the spectrum of unconscious bias. Yeah, I do echo what you mentioned about the limited power of law because sometimes if there is no law established to protect a certain community against discrimination, does that mean discrimination against those communities doesn't exist, right? So I completely agree with what you just said there. But um, Pooja, another aspect that sort of fuse maybe a bit of that stigma or even discrimination against ethnic minorities in this part of the world in Asia is, like you mentioned earlier in the episode, religion is also a factor. And in fact, religion is a topic itself that's very extremely sensitive in Asia Pacific, but there are really like over 4,000 recognized religions globally. But unlike the US, in Asia, people don't really talk about that openly. Or I have heard comments about how like maybe in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, in India, um, in those countries, it's very sensitive. And people also sort of categorized Hong Kong as a city where um, the talks of religion doesn't really exist or like people kind of don't see religions. So I find all these observations very, very interesting. But I want you to help us understand just how complicated is the discussion of religions in Asia and why is this so sensitive? 
I think that's such a huge um, sort of <laughs> question. And, and obviously, you know, there's so many factors um, that one could kind of focus attention on. But let me start with this, right? We are living in a region that's probably one of the most diverse regions globally, right? And historically, Asia has always been characterized by diversity, uh, regardless of the kinds of empires that we've had. So in the pre-colonial period as well, um, in fact, when uh, one of the sort of um, emperors of India, for example, Ahsoka in fourth century BC, uh, or even in the Ottoman Empire, right? There were these periods where a lot of people uh, of very diverse religious backgrounds and orientations were living together. And there were policies instituted that were designed to ensure that there was religious harmony and inclusivity and a recognition that everybody brought something to the table. Um, Whereas now, I think we're living in a climate where the majority of the Asian kind of um, nations are not of the same kind of liberal democratic temperament that you see in, uh, in for example, in the West. Uh, that said, just because the West is liberal democratic has not meant that it has escaped the challenge of managing religious diversity. In fact, we you know we note that the West was the source of um, this serious tragic episode in in our humanity, where the Jews were uh, the target of such gross uh, violence and genocide. Right. So that's where history sort of connects us, in that we have seen an era of grave persecution. And that persecution persists uh, in ways now towards different religious communities. So obviously, with um, 9-11, we've seen the uh, rise of Islamophobia. And that is not only something that is sort of uh, limited to the West. It's also something that has uh, pervaded sort of the Asian context um, especially if you think about the two largest nations or the most uh, heavily populated nations in Asia. So as much as Asia has the most populated state uh, or nations uh, comprising Muslims, so I'm talking about Malaysia and Indonesia, at the same time, we also have India and China, which do perceive Islam as one of the greatest rising threats uh, in terms of religion. And so I think that, you know, we've got the notion of Islam being a threat to our value system. Um, and I think a lot of that is rhetoricized because of how it's been politicized in the West, but also in this part of the world. And coupling that with kind of the more authoritarian tendencies of the regimes that we have in the region, even with India, you know, despite it being the world's largest democracy, there are some very problematic policies that we're seeing emerging there. Um, and there's a lot of rhetoric and narrative around kind of Muslim populations or Muslim values and Muslim practices that have increasingly come under attack uh, in ways that, you know, haven't been seen before. The other complexity, of course, is even within the religion, uh, religious community itself, there is a huge diversity in terms of religious practice, value systems, the sects, right? The, the sects within each of these uh, religious communities and they aren't able to reconcile how to live together or how to sort of view each other. There are, you know, some factions within those groups as well. And so as with any religion, right, even if you take Christianity, there's a spectrum. 
you've got the liberal, the moderates, and then you've got the you know fundamentalists. And it's the same with the Hindus. And it's exactly the same with, I think, the Muslims, right? So that's one challenge that you've got these very strong um, extremes that are playing out in different contexts. And um, I think that the more there is exclusion or this tendency to suppress, uh, the, the greater this need to manifest in, in some kind of a, a more overt manner uh, for some of these communities, right, in order to not be obliterated, in order to remain visible. So, for example, the post 9-11 policies led to a global reckoning, which um, saw many uh, Muslims decide to adopt uh, a more visible form of their religious or cultural dress. Right. And that was a deliberate decision. Uh, and we've seen that happen in the context of cultural communities as well, where, um, for example, diaspora have relocated or located to the West, for example. If there are pushbacks against their uh, traditions, they tend to become even more entrenched because they want to hold on to those facets of their identity. Right. And so you see this constant kind of um, dance between oppression and then the resurgence of uh, religious identity or cultural identity. And so it's really important to see this as an interplay with the kind of political context. Um, and obviously, we're treading very dangerous ground where we're seeing, um, you know, the potential. Uh, well, I think the only way in which it can be labeled is really the genocide of Muslims in Myanmar, in the Rakhine state, for example, and how that was fueled largely by the deployment of social media as a vehicle to kind of generate the kind of hate that would um, allow people to feel that that is not a community that is even human and therefore their, you know, their deaths are insignificant, even though the deaths have amounted into a significant number. And, and I think that that's sort of the common pattern that we see. What we had seen historically with the Jews is now becoming a common feature that we're witnessing in relation to Muslim communities, um, especially in Asia, whether we're talking about India or we're talking about Myanmar, we're talking about China. I think that these are some of the sensitivities that inhibit people from openly professing their religion, from openly engaging in religious discussion. Uh, and this um, talk about tolerance rather than inclusion, I think is problematic because tolerance denotes the sense that you're doing a favor uh, in terms of, you know, bearing somebody. I'm putting up with you. I'm tolerating you. And I think that terminology is, you know, deeply problematic. But that's kind of where I think we are at in the region. Um, and so religion and politics have become deeply intertwined. And there isn't kind of the moral authority left in the institutions of the world, whether we're talking about the UN or we're talking about, you know, um, leaders of the free world. You know, we would look to the UK traditionally or the US. I don't think that either of those nations now bear the moral authority to be able to tell other countries what to do. And so we're really seeing a trend in in um, in a negative direction. And that's why it's so hard to to contend with religion in this sphere, because everyone is labeled as a kind of pro this or pro that or a hardliner X or a hardliner Y. Um, so I think that... Um, it's very important to think about how we are educating the general population about um, sort of religious communities and the realities 
as someone who is agnostic, I'm, I always find it quite shocking how much religions could cause hostility and divide. Because sometimes, somehow, my approach to talking about religions with people is that I would always expect disagreements, and that's okay. And also, when you really look at the fundamental values that all these various religions are teaching their people, it's really kind of going back to that simple message of doing good or love each other. But historically, it has really caused a lot of hate and it has even become a reason that someone would start a war, someone would start killing people. So it is a very complicated topic. But I do want to ask, you know, in terms of policy level, is there any work that can be done to foster a sense of religious acceptance or inclusion, not on like nation level, but maybe within the workplace, within a school? Is there anything that can be done in the Asia context, really? Absolutely. I think that it's, you know, it's fundamental to introduce um, children to some of the basic tenets of religion and to highlight some of the commonalities, as you said, right? There are some um, features that are uh, common across religious teachings, and that can really be a force for unity and promoting a shared value system and common understanding, right? In terms of the treatment of uh, the common man and what our responsibilities are uh, towards each other, how we treat our families and our broader communities. So I think that that is fundamental. And, and that's where I feel that we we don't do a great job because many schools uh, either tend to be kind of focused on one religion or in their religious studies curriculum tend to take a very um, essentialized view of other religious groups, right? So they might depict kind of, uh, these are the traditions if you're Muslim, right? You celebrate Eid, you wear these costumes, and then, you know, you apply henna, and this is Diwali. And so it's 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 very surface level. It doesn't engage uh, in a deep enough manner to really foster the sense of understanding. And so I think that um, there should be a compulsory kind of uh, course that is taught by example. And I think that, you know, we have the resources to bring together, you know, some of the religious leaders or practitioners in the classroom and enable kind of a really open exchange and dialogue. And whenever that has been done, so for example, I, you know, moderated a panel between a Hindu, a Sikh, and, you know, um, a Muslim cleric. And we talked about the importance of education for girls and um, what are some of the basic tenets of each of the religions. And it was such a productive conversation. And it actually surprised many people because they realized that they harbored these completely ignorant views about Hinduism or Sikhism or Islam. And that it's just that simple, a sort of a lunchtime session where people just got into the room and talked about these things was um, effective in unraveling or at least forcing people to question, where did I get this idea from? And why didn't I turn to the source or ask somebody who is a Muslim, who is a Hindu and say, is this true? Right. Is this, you know, can you tell me some more about this? I want to understand. And the, that's a problem. We're very pro-judgment and we don't do our due diligence. And so it's part sort of exposing people to kind of the tenets through this, um, you know, instructional format or maybe have kind of a dialogue. But it's also um, 
educating young people how to ask questions, how to obtain information that can help you uh, recognize your blind spots so that you don't jump to any conclusion, right? And that's where unconscious bias work is important because it can set the ground work for you identifying some of your weak spots and being like, oh, you know, I seem to have this tendency to look at this group unfavorably. So I need to do more work. Now, how do I do that work? Well, here's where you can start. And I think that would go beyond the the tr- sort of more typical uh, approaches we see in the community, which is people say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go celebrate Diwali with this group. And I'm going to apply henna. I'm going to wear this religious dress. I'll put on a bindi. And then that makes me more culturally sensitive or, you know, but, but that's not the end game. The end game is to seek an entry point and then obtain a vantage point from which you can really do the work uh, of accepting which can only come once you understand. And I think that's what this come down, comes down to. The laws or the policies or measures around inclusion uh, or anti-racism are still very surface level. And people are not prepared to invest the time and the resources to do the work. You have to work on yourself. We all have to work on ourselves to do better and to push ourselves to to be uncomfortable and recognize that our thinking is not perfect. We're part of the problem. And then at least to say, well, okay, I recognize the problem, which means I can do something now, right? Because you can't fix what you can't see. And this is where the research part comes in, right? So all of this comes together because you, you know, when you use an intricate and complex research methodology to unravel some of the nuanced ways in which we're um, oppressing particular communities and it's structural, it's systemic, we then have the capacity to push ourselves to come up with equally intricate um, sort of methodologies then to tackle those problems. And when you do this targeted work, you're then more likely to come up with productive solutions that actually have impact. And the goal for me is not just to educate and then leave it at that. The goal for me is, okay, you did this. You've done this work. Now let's measure where did you get to, right? So you started out with this unconscious bias. After you implemented these measures, you've done the work. Let's see where you are now. And then to take stock again at another juncture maybe a year down the road. And so to recognize that this work is ongoing, it's continuous, it's not one-off, and it requires constant effort if we're really serious about tackling systemic issues, because I strongly believe that a systemic issue warrants a systemic response. It can't be dealt with like a one-off piece of legislation or one case or anything like that. It won't do especially we live in the time where people can easily jump to conclusions based on the first online comment that they see within a social media post. So basically adopting critical thinking and that awareness that we are biased and our thinking is flawed is way more important than ruling out biases that we have because it's impossible. So I'm really thankful to have a very powerful voice like you to be speaking with our listeners and also bring to light all these issues that are facing ethnic minorities, not just in Hong Kong, but around the globe. But now, 
it's time for us to move on to the next segment, which is called Rapid Fires. And now in this segment, I'll be asking my guests biased questions that they've got asked at some points in life. And these questions are more directed to ethnic minorities in Hong Kong or in Asia. So, Pooja, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> All <laughs> Let's right. go. Let's go. First question. Where are your parents from? My parents are from India, but they settled in Hong Kong a very long time ago. And next one. Wow, you don't have an accent. Wow, you don't have an accent. <laughs> That's a really powerful one. And the third question. No, you can't be from Hong Kong. What does it take to be from Hong Kong? Does it take being born here? Does it take going to school here? Does it take being a productive member of the community? Does it take being able to speak in Cantonese? I can tick a lot of those boxes. Uh, in my short lifetime, I can say I've done many of those things. And if that doesn't qualify me as a Hong Konger, then I would say that many of the people who pose this question can't be a Hong Konger either. And I think one of the most prominent le legacies is the reality that many of our uh, ancestors who uh, came in with the British Army as part of the battalion, right, the Indian soldiers, uh, or the Nepalese Gurkha community who provided security uh, in the colonial era. You know, they have probably done far more to signify their loyalty to Hong Kong and the people of Hong Kong. And so if those communities who have given their blood, sweat, and sacrificed for Hong Kong can't be seen as Hong Kongers, uh, then I really don't think many communities would qualify to call themselves Hong Kongers. And the next question is, there is no racism in Hong Kong. Look at you. You are a successful ethnic minority here. For every opportunity that you have had, I have had 10 doors that rejected me. For every hour that you spent networking, I probably spent 10 times as much to even find one bead so that I could get my foot in a particular door. For every person in your network that you could see as a role model, I spent my entire youth dreaming to be the role model so that the communities that come after me can look up and say, hey, I can be successful too. I could contribute and I don't have to necessarily live a life of poverty. So for as much as Hong Kong has uh, meant the world to me and made me who I am, I would say that it has happened in spite of the racism because of the efforts and the sheer hard work that I've had to put in every hour of every day to work 10 times or 100 times harder than anybody else uh, who's my contemporary in order to not only get to the position that I'm at, but also to be able to stay in this position. Because people uh, are always ready to write you off and people are always ready to take you down. For a person like me, it would just take one mistake for my downfall. And that is a reality that I live with every day. So just imagine living like that, where the sword of Democles hangs over your head for every action or inaction. And finally, 
when do you go back home? I don't have to go back because I'm always here. Nice. Thank you so much for playing this round of rapid bias, Pooja, with all your powerful responses. And now to conclude the episode, are there any projects that are in the works for you that you could tell us about? Well, I think I alluded earlier to the importance of connecting global challenges. Um, and actors who are, you know, determined to do something. And so one such project on the horizon for me is really uh, to pull together um, a community of advocates, young people, first in Hong Kong and then globally, who can work on developing um, a cross-cultural curriculum that can speak to the systemic nature of biases and then work on counter narratives of how we tackle them. And I'm hoping to enlist young people because I think that they are um, equipped with the potential and the capacity to harness the power of um, sort of technology in a, in a positive way. And I really want to bring all of those resources together to co-create something that hopefully will have this lasting impact and maybe can turn around this very uh, tragic legacy that we have of slavery and colonialism into something very different. And it would be so amazing if the future narrative could be that this was the generation that basically helped generate a new counter-narrative that changed the way the world looked at diasporic communities. So that's the vision. Nice. I can't wait to see this coming to life. And finally, I just have one last question for you, Pooja. To you, what does it mean to be proudly Hong Konger? I think that it is really um, such an honor to be living in a moment and to have faced the challenges that I've faced so that I could have a deeper understanding of the work that needs to be done and to be able to be in a position to contribute towards positive change so that Hong Kong could be this microcosm of a community that could set an example for the potential that we could all have if we were able to develop an inclusive community that was welcoming uh, and and really set a, a good example of how we can contribute to the long-term productivity of an entire nation. So I think that, you know, being proudly Asian comes from living in an era where it's still possible to achieve something like that, or at least make a start. Thank you so much for joining us on Proudly Asian, Pooja. And thank you so, so much for the work that you've been doing. Thank you, Isabel. It's been so wonderful chatting with you. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong. Just, 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 just.